Hello and welcome to IMI's Talking Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Hugh, and today we're talking collaboration, how to do it as a team, an organization, and across borders. I'm joined by Mark Mortensen, recent masterclass speaker at IMI, an associate professor of organizational behavior at INSEAD. Mark is also someone with an engineering background, and you'll see that come across in the way you approach his collaboration through deliberative design, while allowing for those messy realities of life. As I was watching the masterclass online and writing questions for today, I had lots of aha, but how can you this work in practice questions, which Mark subsequently answered in the next breath. So I'm hoping we get that practical advice across for you guys today. So Mark, hi, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Hugh. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. I had a lot of fun doing the masterclass. I really enjoyed it. Had some good questions from the audience as well. So I'm looking forward to a follow-up and to keep digging and hopefully providing some answers that'll be useful to all of your listeners. Yeah, and, and one of the unique things about that masterclass was, was it was virtual. I think it was our first ever virtual masterclass. So I want to start with that big question on everyone's mind at the moment. I've read so much about remote working and virtual working and every single piece always seems to come down to the question, but how are we going to collaborate in this virtual environment? Can it ever be as good? So my question to you is, have you figured it out yet? If I had figured it out, I would be a very, very rich man, um, and uh, I think I think the world would look like a very different place. I think the reality we have to to accept is, you know, I, much as it pains me to admit it, my colleagues in economics are really onto something, right? One of the things they always say is, the more common something becomes, the less it becomes in value. The more valuable it is, the more people jump in and try to to take a piece of it. The fact that nobody has come up with the one right answer for the best way to be collaborative in a virtual environment, to me, actually tells you something. It tells you that there isn't one right answer. Mm -hmm. It is an evolving process. It has to be an adaptive process. And it's a contextual process. You have to understand what are the particular uh, the characteristics of the environment you're in. That could be the organization you're in. That could be the industry that you're in. That is the country that you're in. All of these factors and even the specific people that you've got. It has to be something that is fundamentally about, about understanding and knowing that environment and designing collaboration best to fit that. That doesn't mean there aren't some rules, doesn't mean there aren't some, some guidelines, and that's what we really want to focus on is what are some of the common things that help us get as far in the right direction as possible. And the last piece on this being, you said, you know, can it ever be as good? It's different. And I think it's important for, for the listeners to keep this in mind. There are ways in which working virtually and working remotely gives you benefits that you can't get face to face. There are also things that you lose. And the best way forward is to be cognizant of that, to keep that in mind and to make a conscious decision as a leader, as a manager about the trade-offs that you're making. And I, I don't want to concentrate too much on the virtual angle because obviously we will return to a new normal at some stage but we'll we'll, we'll weave it in in the conversation but i do want to take a step back and take that broader more long-term view uh, what's your theory of the case when it comes to collaboration within, within organizations where do you think we are and, and where are we going so i of course it is it, it's a hard to predict thing but i think there um there are a number of different schools of thought there are a whole bunch of people out there who are they're hawking the new normal. They're saying, hey, this is what I've got to sell you. The new normal, all organizations have to be virtual. They have to be virtual all the time. Virtual, virtual, virtual. Yeah. And I think we also all recognize that there are things that we're missing. Um, what we've had, if you want to think of it this way, is a massive social experiment. Massive mm -hmm. social experiment in which everybody has been forced to move 
over or through the learning curve uh, to becoming significantly more virtual and remote because we had no choice. Mm. Um, it's important to keep in mind that that is an experiment. That also means that the new normal is undefined. It's going to be probably more remote working. There's no question about that yeah. because a lot of us have realized there's some things that we really like. It is, however, going to be more of a hybrid model than we're in right now. Right now, we are forced to work remotely for many of us. Many of us are still under some constraints in terms of our offices, in terms of lockdowns. Um, and so we have to work remotely. In the future, the reality is going to be there's going to be more choice. There's likely to be more pull towards doing some more remote work. Um, you know, there are high profile cases of companies that say, oh, everyone can work remotely forever now. Yeah. Um, that's not going to be the new normal. The new normal is going to be hybrid teams. It's going to be more and more, which is what we've had in the past. But we've pushed the boundary a little bit. We've moved people towards greater familiarity, greater comfort with this kind of working. And this new hybrid is going to involve some new skills on the part of both uh, team members and team leaders as well. Yeah. And I want to get into sort of the, the challenges to collaboration, particularly the complexity in the world. There's that thinking now that we're in a sort of era of uh, niche brilliance, where an individual can't have the sort of innovative impact that they used to, probably with a few exceptions. And really any innovation is a result of collaboration. Is that something you'd subscribe to? Absolutely. Um, I, the only thing I'd push back on is how new that actually is. I think that this is, you know, this is a reality. Uh, as problems get more complex, we need deeper and more narrow specialization in order for anybody to have the depth that they need to be able to solve the problem. Yeah. That, by definition, means we need greater and stronger collaboration. But when you really look at it, when we look at things like innovation and creativity, there's this myth of the, you know, the, the Newtonian apple, the, the eureka moment in the bathtub yeah. where some one person has a brilliant idea and they have the one ability to, to take things forward. And that's just not the most common occurrence. It happens every once in a while, lightning strikes. It doesn't usually have strike multiple times. The companies that are more innovative, that really do this kind of the creative work on and on and on and on. You have examples like IDEO, product design, 3M. These companies have built in designed collaboration, designed innovation and, and this kind of working environment. Almost and, and they it, it's almost down to a monotonous process, um, which sounds very counterintuitive when you think about creating innovative ideas and these sorts of things. Um, but it is. It's really about getting people to work together, the collision of ideas and perspectives in order to generate new things that no one person could come up with. And I think that this is this is the reality that we've got. I think that as problems become more complex, there are even more factors we have to bring into play. And therefore, there's an even stronger pull for the collaborative uh, for collaborative work, although we've needed that value for quite a long time. Yeah, and I think we're going to talk a lot about collaboration at scale, you know, in those large organizations that can that can staff up these specialities or spe yeah, specialities. But I do want to quickly talk about the small to medium enterprises as well. What can an individual in an organization like this do about the complex complexity that they're facing? People are being asked to cover a huge breadth of specialized tasks. How can they possibly keep up against that multinational that has 20 people doing the same thing? Well, I think you have to accept what you can change and accept what you can't. And you have to accept the realities of the situation. The small niche player who doesn't have the scale and the scope, well, you can't compete on scale and scope. What yeah. you need to do is you need to find a way to rescope what you're doing to make sure that within your domain, you have 
a competitive advantage, something that sets you apart, that puts you ahead. You may not be able, if you're, do, if you're in software design, you may not have the stable of talent that a Google has, that a Microsoft has, that an Alibaba has, that you pick your, pick your, your Goliath that you want uh, to, to be the David against. Mm. You, know, you, can, you can't compete with those. But what you can do is say, look, well, what is it that I offer? Well, I may offer a very narrow focus. Those big players, by definition, they have to be thinking across, and that dilutes their perspective. It makes them think about 12 different ways to solve a problem rather than saying, you know what, we're going to be the absolute best at solving this one piece of the problem. By narrowing in, you scope out the, the advantages that the others have, and you create a better possibility for you to stand alone. Now, the other piece of the puzzle, um, the, the part of the conversation that people often don't like to have is you also have to be honest with yourself, honest with yourself in terms of where you don't have a competitive position. Yeah. And you have to ask yourself whether that's really where you want to play. And one of the things I see for a lot of organizations, it's very difficult to walk away from something uh, because we have invested, even though we know about sunk costs and all that stuff, you know, there's an emotional piece around yeah. we've been working in this direction. One of the things we've been seeing also with COVID is, you know, the the current order has been upset in a lot of ways. And one thing, one of the things that I've seen effective organizations do is to ask the really hard soul searching questions of what do we actually need to stop doing? Mm. What are we what have we been saying? This is our wave to the future. And now we're saying, you know what? Uh, at least while we are dealing with things like uh, shut like uh, uh, lockdowns and things like that, we're going to actually put some of these projects on hold, uh, maybe even kill off some of them in favor of doing the things where we're really going to create actual additive value. Value, yeah. And, and and on the opposite end, I'm talking again about those sort of multinationals now. Doesn't this increasing specialization lead to a narrowing of thinking? Um, maybe you sort of stop making those collaborative connections across the specialities that you used to if you if there's more of a Venn diagram of specialities, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's always a risk. Um, and again, one of the things, as I said in the beginning, uh, for me, leadership and management is fundamentally about trade-offs. There is nothing in, in any managerial action, whether it's a, a statement you're making to the public or to your employees, whether it's a decision on funding and budgeting, whether it is a a shift in your organization's culture or anything like that, everything involves a trade-off. Nothing comes for free. In this case, when you start focusing more on narrowness and specialization, you have to realize you start to lose touch with, with some of the other possibilities. Yeah. For many organizations, uh, you know, they deal with this by saying, okay, we actually, we segment. Uh, we have a group that is really on the, let's think about new ideas and crazy wacky things, right? When Apple launched the Macintosh, but when, not when they launched it, when they started designing the Macintosh, yeah. They put those engineers in a separate building on the campus and they flew a pirate flag on the top of the building. <laughs> they literally said, you do your thing. And Sun had Skunk Works. Lots of organizations have a model in which they say, the people who need to come up with divergent thinking, we protect them from us. And we put them in a, in a separate sort of piece. And then those of you who need to go deep and narrow in order to execute on a particular piece, go do it, run with it as long as you can. But that way you make sure that you're at least hedging because, you know, we know this, it's a, it's a classic trade-off. It's called the exploration exploitation trade-off done by, uh, by, by folks back in the 1950s. This isn't new, but it's a, it's a very real tension that the current situation is actually bringing more and more to the surface. Yeah. Super. Um, a, a very sort of almost philosophical question. Should we be trying to get people to talk to each other and come up with a solution independently, 
or should we be listening to their conversation and then designing a solution? Yes. <laughs> Both. <laughs> that, that's my annoying, obnoxious <laughs> answer, right? There's, again, know what the trade, recognize what the trade offs are. Yeah. Um, when you steal, so all organizations have this as attention where you're wrestling, how directive do we want to be? Now, um, 3M was famous. They had a, a phrase, you put fences around scientists, you get sheep. Um, and they, they fundamentally believe 3M were, were really the pioneers of what Google and others have done you know, since then, saying, OK, everybody gets, for example, 20 percent of their time to do stuff. Mm. Um, we're not going to tell you what you need to do. We're not going to tell you you have to be on target or on task. We're just going to let you do whatever comes to mind. Now, some of these projects at companies like Google have turned into massive wins. Um, my understanding, for example, Gmail was one of those projects. It was, a, it was a side project, which then gets pulled in because you recognize this is hugely valuable. Mm. This mindset is saying, look, we don't know, A, who's going to have the, the, the really novel, innovative ideas. So we don't want to say only a certain set of people, right? So this is counter to the Apple, uh, the Macintosh model. We also don't know what exactly we're going to innovate on. We could be innovating on process. We could be innovating on product. We could be innovating on a whole lot of different things. So this model says we want to let anybody do it and we want to give them as much, uh, we want to free them as much as possible from constraint to generate great ideas. But there's a risk to that. You end up with very divergent ideas, sometimes things that are too divergent for you to be able to capitalize on. So you've invested you know, uh, coming up with new ideas is the most costly thing that you can be doing. Executing and improving your execution, that's a lot cheaper from a, from a, from kind of all perspectives. It's easier, more, you know, cognitively, its resources are, are lower. So you incur the cost of wild and crazy new ideas, but maybe some of those are so wild and crazy that you can't actually do something with them. The flip side is you start directing and the upside is you know that everything that comes out of that discussion is something that's going to be spot on with the direction that you're taking the company. And that's fantastic. But you may miss an incredible opportunity that you just hadn't thought of before. So for me, you need both. You need to have some amount of unfettered freedom and creativity in order to generate these new ideas and new product projects. You also need somebody who's saying, hey, wait a second, we can think a little bit more in a more targeted way. Let's dig into specifics. First of all, uh, collaborative tools. I think a lot of people would start be using these recently like Slack, Microsoft Teams, et cetera, et cetera. What's your position here in the, the sort of ecosystem of uh, collaboration? So, I mean, I think obviously collaborative tools play a very important role. They help us to basically to outsource what we're bad at. We're bad at keeping track of lots of things, managing the logistics and, and, and these sorts of tasks. And all of these tools basically perform that function. When you really boil it down and you start looking at where, what the technologies offer, break it down. I'm, again, I'm an engineer. What are their affordances? What do they actually allow you to do? It's largely the same set of things. Super. In your masterclass, you came at collaboration through the lens of deliberately designing effective collaborations. Can you explain your thinking here? Absolutely. So one of the things that we know from, give or take, about 50 years worth of, of uh, very rigorous research on teams, collaboration, and, and effectiveness is 
the biggest impact that you get isn't from spending your time watching what's going on and trying to adjust on the fly. Mm. The biggest impact in terms of actual effectiveness you get from designing the team the right way. Doesn't mean you have to design it from scratch. You can also use think the same way as mm. you know a doctor when they're learning uh, when they're learning the ropes and learning how to to practice medicine. They study healthy human bodies and then they can reverse engineer when something's not quite working right. Well, this is exactly the approach that we take when we, we, or we need to take when we think about our teams. The best approach, especially when we are busy and being pulled in all different directions, isn't as a leader to sit there and try to monitor, watch like a hawk and look for any bad behavior and try to fix it on the fly. We're just not that good at it. Mm. By far, the better solution, the more effective solution is for us to actually think about designing the team the right way. And so for me, that design approach makes a lot of sense. Then on top of that, given that we have an incredibly dynamic VUCA environment where we have to deal with changes and things like that, this is where ideas like design thinking are built around repeated iterative design that allows you to fine tune and to adjust to changes that come out in your environmental context. In that way, design just seems like the obvious choice for how to really approach getting the best out of your teams. I, I always like to use my position of ignorance to ask the stupid questions. But something like design thinking, is that something people can look up, download a template, do a bit of reading and start implementing the philosophy behind it? It does seem to uh, that we're using a complex tool to fight complexity. It's uh, it's actually a lot simpler than we think. Um, so uh, the short answer is yes. I mean, design thinking design thinking actually isn't anything radically new. Uh, it's a label that got a lot of press and people really liked. It comes the the, the official sort of labeling comes out of the Stanford uh, Stanford D School. But the basic idea is very simple. The idea is, look, step one, really understand why you're trying to build something, right? Understand the users, understand what they need. And this is something we need to be doing more of in our teams anyway. We tend to jump straight into, oh, I'm just going to build the thing without yeah. really stopping to think about the why. The second piece is around saying, okay, once I really understand what's going on, I need to come up with a design, but design thinking approaches this not from a there's going to be one answer and once I get it, I'm done, but from a rapid prototyping perspective saying, look, the best thing I can do, come up with an answer, test it, see how it works and then adjust. Right. Don't worry about getting the 100 percent solution right off the bat. If you get the 50 percent solution and you get it at a third of the time, you're still ahead of the game. And then it's about empirical testing, right? You, you do the work, you see how it's going, and then you come back and you ask yourself, okay, how did that work out for me? Is this design the right one? Is this the best way forward? In this way, you can take just the core principles of design thinking and apply it here uh, to, in order to, to really try to get the best and the most adaptive approach to building your teams. Again, yeah, it's sorry, yeah. it's just funny when you're talking about design thinking because I remember seeing the first time I said, that's exactly what engineers have been doing since Archimedes. <laughs> you got it. It is. It's completely this. And, and that's that's where there's there's no real magic trick here. This is not something that's revolutionary. But what it does do and where I do think it's actually important is there's a very simple truth, which is most issues that managers, that leaders have come from the knowing doing gap, right? If we had unlimited time and unlimited reflection, we would make better decisions and get stuff done. Mm. The problem is we're operating under constrained data. We're operating under a lot of time pressure, moving fast in, in a lot of different ways. And often we forget the stuff that we really know we should be doing. What I like about taking a design thinking approach is it just puts some structure around it so that it kind of forces you 
to to keep yourself honest, to make sure that you're stopping and doing the things that you need to do uh, to check and to test and to assess, because these are the I, things that often fall off. And it's something you've sort of adapted yourself. It's, it's not design thing. It's agile team design process. Basically, I mean, agile, when, when you look at it, agile was was also an adaptation of design thinking in a lot of ways, right? It's just a structured way of doing design thinking with some different labels. As we know, most of the things that get peddled out there, it's a repackaging, it's old wine and new bottles. Um, but what is important is that you have a structure. And, and at the end of the day, whether you use the model that I happen to like or use another one, what I really recommend, the most important thing is you have a structured way of thinking about your teams, thinking about the way in which you build those teams, thinking about the way in which those teams are executed, and thinking about how you debrief and evaluate and assess so that you learn from your processes in those teams. And you're very much a, a perfect is the enemy of good, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, and don't get me wrong, I like perfect. I'm a perfectionist myself, which is probably why I've taught myself not to do it, because you can spend so much time trying to squeeze the last little bit the 80-20 rule is the 80-20 rule for a very good reason, right? We know we get the biggest amount of value um, not out of the fine-tuning of the last little steps. If that's not where you need to be, don't waste your time. Right. I want to dig into actually how to design a team. You know, someone listening out there right now. Firstly, you talked about sort of reversing engineering. So what are those factors that make a collaboration in a team go bad and then the factors that help it go well? So I think if there's one thing more than anything else that is is the hallmark or the driver of effective teams, there's one thing that can be the biggest obstacle uh, that, that makes teams go wrong, it's lack of clarity or disagreement about the actual purpose, the goal of the team itself. This seems like a complete no-brainer, right? Everybody says, of course we know what we're doing. But if we're actually honest, if we actually stop and think about the teams that we're on, very, very often, most of us will say, yeah, we could probably be a little bit clearer. There's probably some disagreement. Some people see the purpose in one light. Some people see it in another. Some people, For some people, it is a, a, a step towards advancement. For other people, it's about the objective of the team. For others, it's something, you know, something even different. Mm -hmm. Stopping and having that conversation is a critical and so simple step towards improving the quality of the team, uh, team performance, team effectiveness overall. That's where I always tell people they need to start. So that leader wanting to design an effective team or recalibrate existing ones, I think this is unbelievably relevant right now with all the disruption from COVID and, and organizations pivoting all over the place. Mm -hmm. What's the first step? Do you look at the challenge first or do you look at, I think you call it getting the setup right? Yeah. Well, the two are intertwined. Mm. You can't get the setup right unless you know what you're setting up for. So the first question you have to ask, and, and uh, with, with Connie Hadley, uh, she and I wrote an article on preparing your teams for the long haul. One of the things that we argued in there is there's basically three phases. The immediate is a triage phase. And this is what most of us have been dealing with amidst COVID. This is stopping and saying, wait a second, you know, first things first. Is the foundation of the team, the interpersonal foundation, broken? Right? Are there people who are really suffering? Are there dynamics that are, are threatening to pull the team apart? If you don't deal with that, the team is going to blow apart and you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. Secondly, is the purpose even something we need to be thinking about? There are unfortunately lots of projects out there in the world right now that are legacy projects. They're pre-COVID projects where if you really push the senior management and said, is this where we should still be investing our time and energy and resources? They would probably say no. 
But you know what? We're in lather, rinse, repeat mode. We just keep going. We keep executing. So first step, figure out those things that are potentially going to break or invalidate your team. Second step, right? We think sort of like a like a in, in a medical sense. The second step is about treatment. How can we make these things better? How can we fine tune? And that's about making sure the design is right. Here we're talking about again alignment around around the right goals and those sorts of things. Uh, the configuration of the team, the resources the team has, all of that. And then the third is about that long term sort of preventative care approach making sure that you've baked into your team a process of reflection that includes reflecting whether or not the team needs to keep going. Um, and this is something that, again, it's not easy to do uh, or it's not easy to keep your to, to keep honest on, but it's a really important step. And um, those things, enablers, you call them. Um, is there anywhere where we can sort of point the listener to go and, and read an article to see, OK, these are the, 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 the enablers I, I need to consider? Uh, sure. Uh, well, obviously, I, I have a slight bias here, but uh, I have an article with Martine Haas that came out a few years ago about, called The Secrets of Effective, Team, uh, yeah. Effective Teamwork, um, and that's a Harvard Business Review article. There's uh, a second piece that get, adds another flavor to that or another element of that, um, which is a, an article done with Heidi Gardner called The Overcommitted Organization. They're part of what we're looking at is also not just designing within the team, but designing across teams. What happens when teams have interconnected shared membership? And then, as I, as I mentioned, uh, this most recent is a, a digital article with Connie Hadley um, called Preparing Your Remote Teams for the Long Haul. Um, and that really sort of lays out and starts uh, pushing people on thinking about that short-term triage, the medium-term intervention, and the long-term preventative care approach. Um, I'm always obsessed with first steps. I always think they're the hardest. So yep. during the masterclass, you asked participants to to write it down. I think it was the word of phrase. You actually, mm -hmm. it was just it was just an exercise for them. It struck me that it might be the first step here is for a leader too, is just to write this down in nice, simple language. Mm -hmm. Is that a good exercise for someone listening right now? Absolutely. Um, you know, where I always tell people to start, there, there's, it's twofold. One, start with a little bit of individual reflection. Uh, get yourself a, a, a notebook in a quiet room and actually stop for a minute, put your phone away and give yeah. yourself a little bit of time to really think about what this team is trying to do, trying to think about how it's how it's functioning, its dynamics, all of that. And you can even just do a little bit of a free form thing, right? Just write a paragraph or two about your assessment of how the team is doing. But my big word of advice here, step one is that you do that. Step two is have the team do it also. Um, and the best thing you can do is sit down and have a conversation. Sit down and have a conversation with the team. You know, a great exercise. Have everybody in the team do that, or certainly at least the key stakeholders, and then sit down around a table and share what you came up with in your reflections. What's important is that you do that initial part independently. That way you don't constrain, you don't create bias to have people converge around one message. Mm -hmm. What you really want is you want this to be data. Each person comes up with their reflection about how the team is doing, where the key challenges are, and then you come together and you look to see, do we have consistent themes? Whether you do or whether you don't, both are interesting. They both point you in different directions, but it's an important first step. Um, it raises an interesting question there about the sort of individual innovation that then leads to collaboration. It just as a general sort of ph philosophical question, what do you do with those people that like to be on their own when they're creative? Um, do you let them come up with ideas and then bring them to the table or do you try and bring them into the process? 
I think that you can have their individual efforts be part of the process. Um, you know, part of what you need is you need to understand your people. If you have somebody who really is an independent creative, let them do that. Let them be yeah. independent, but make sure that you've baked into your process of collaborative creativity and collaborative innovation and, and design work and all of this. Make sure that you've baked into that an entry point for those divergent ideas. Mm. One way, uh, not they don't have to be divergent, but they may be. One way to do that, again, give people different modalities. You can say, look, we're going to have a meeting, but anybody can be posting things into the chat and send up messages. Hey, what about this? Could we do this? Could we do that? Yeah. If there, you know, one of the other things we often have is, of course, power dynamics creep in. If you're worried about that, have people send it to you as the team leader, and then you can reshare anonymously and, and you can promote uh, a dissemination of ideas on as even and balanced a, a starting point as possible. That's what you want because you want to be able to take a look at all of these ideas and then really assess them based on their own merits, not based on just who brought them to the table. Cool. So uh, before we leave actually designing a team, just to loop back, um, for leaders listening right now, they should consider the challenge they're trying to solve, use the agile team design framework or something similar to design their team in terms of staffing, and then make sure those enablers are there to so the team can actually succeed in the long term. Tell me what I got it wrong there. You got it pretty much spot on. Okay, cool. Well, the, it, it sounds very easy, but I would imagine it's a lot more complicated than always, that. Always, always. You know, again, having having the principles in place and having the model and the framework is a great first step. Mm. The most critical thing in, in the execution, which is, of course, where things break down, is keeping those lines of communication open. Um, and the more the more collaborative and the more uh, inclusive you can be in that process, the better. You want to make sure that you're bringing in all the perspectives in the team. You may, in the process, realize that some of them are more tangential. They may not be as critical, and that's fine. But it's important that you at least have brought those to the table. Okay, let's go up a level of complexity then, sort of collaboration within organizations. Within teams, it's one thing. But what are the dynamics of trying to get teams to collaborate with other teams? How is it working nowadays? What are the, the fundamental changes we're, we're missing? So I... Oh boy, where to start? The, the the challenge is, of course, that it's it's relative. We we just talked about everything around designing a team, and yeah. then we add another order of magnitude of complexity when we then have to think about not only do we have to design those teams, we have to design how those teams interact with other teams that are also themselves being designed. Part of what this is like is it's kind of like you're building a jigsaw puzzle with parts that themselves pieces that are themselves changing in shape, right? And this is part of the challenge. One of the things that I have been spending a lot of time thinking about is also the fact that those pieces don't change shape independently. One of the challenges we have, I mentioned the article with um, with Heidi Gardner on the overcommitted organization. That article uh, and, the, and the research underlying it really starts pulling apart one of the real challenges we have, which is that in almost every organization, we have people who are working on multiple projects. Mm. When they work on multiple projects, by definition, that means they're shared, they are a shared resource across different projects. And we now have to start factoring that in when we think about the independence of those projects. How do we run them? How do we think about them? How do we actually manage risk across those projects? Now that those people are actually connecting those projects, even if the work is completely independent of one another, because they share people, they may actually still have some very strong and interdependencies. At the moment, are we putting the burden of communicating that on the individual 
or do you see organizations actually trying to get a grasp on this? Absolutely on the individual. For the, for the vast majority of cases, it's on, the, it's, it's on the shoulders of the individual in part because we typically do staffing in a decentralized pull sort of model. Yeah. Most organizations, even those that do, for example, um, you know, billable hours, if you're talking about a service firm, professional service firm, law firms, consulting, people say, ah, but look, we bill our hours. So there's a crystal clear rating and, and, and assessment of where people are spending their time, which projects have which people. But we also all know that the hours billed do not reflect the actual hours worked. Mm. More often than not, they're an underreporting. We work for lots and lots, but we've only got a contract to, to bill a certain number of hours to the client. So there's a whole bunch of hours that just sort of dissolve. Whether those hours are billed or not, they are still interdependencies between projects. And that's where we have to be careful. And what are the impacts of being on these multiple teams? I'd, I'd like to do individual first. Obviously, there's burnout and things like that. I'm also thinking of, we all have that uh, experience where the one person in the organization just gets volunteered for everything because they're very good. So is that sort of a common occurrence now in those multiple team uh, setup? Absolutely. So one of the challenges is that, is that the, the high performers get pulled in many directions, but it doesn't even have to be purely about high performance. We started off our conversation today talking about uniqueness of skills and more and more specialized skills. Somebody may not be the absolute best, but if they have the unique configuration that is needed in a number of different contexts, again, they're going to get pulled in lots of different directions. We also see some correlation between being on multiple teams and working remotely because, again, it makes a lot of sense. Those often are the more highly sought after resources. They're often more expensive resources. And so being able to reduce the burden by allowing them to work remotely and these sorts of things often uh, is, is often something that organizations need to do. So we have to think it, it is done at an individual level. Um, the burden is typically we assume that this is going to be managed by the individual um, and unfortunately, we do still have a culture in many, many organizations where starting to raise the, your voice and say, you know what, I'm being stretched too thin. It's seen as a sign of weakness. Um, yeah. And this is actually a really big problem because it pushes people to not to not reveal these things. And the end result is they actually are working, but they're working suboptimally. They don't they aren't able to put their and bring their best self and best amount of effort to work. And it's that classic case then you're you're basically putting all the burden on your high talents and reducing their effectiveness until they eventually leave. Yep, exactly. exactly and, and then when you take that organization wide um, effect of these multiple teams, you, 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 you talked about shocks and ripples. Um, yep. Can you just talk us through that and the sort of practical outcomes of, of these, uh, the way we're working now? Absolutely. One of the things that, that we've discovered or we've recognized as we one of the one of the ways in which we've been studying this, we've been using agent based modeling. So we use computer simulations of millions and millions of projects. We feed into that the data that we have from studying projects in the field. And then we're able to see the way in which these configurations actually react in uh, to to all sorts of different exogenous shocks and problems that, that may arise. Right. You can think of something like COVID as being one example, but it could be something much smaller, it could be a project where a competitor enters the market and rapidly speeds up the, the, the time to market. It could be the loss of intellectual property. It could be anything. One of the things that we have discovered or that we've really been focusing on and we've been trying to unpack more 
is the fact that when you have people who are shared across multiple projects, you've actually created human capital interdependence. You've created a new source of risk for the organization because these people are actually conduits through which information, um, through which uh, shocks can actually be transferred. Mm. So when when a project starts having some real problems and they say, hey, Hugh, we need you 100% of the time on our project, that means you step away from the other projects. Maybe you were shared between four projects at a quarter time each. Yep. You step away from the other three to dedicate all of your time to the project that's on fire. What that means is every one of those other three projects is now dealing with their own shortfall. Yep. This is what we mean by the shock is what, is what hits in the beginning that calls you to that first project. The ripple is the ripple that can go through the organization as a result. The challenge is the design and the structure, the configuration of the overlap and the patterns in the in the organization has a huge impact on the organization's ability to absorb and deal with those shocks uh, and to avoid ripples or to ameliorate and sort of eat the ripples before they get too big. So what are the practical solutions to this? Because I, I think we're agreed that multiple team membership is here to stay. So yep. so how can organizations uh, counteract this? Well, this is some stuff that we're still working on. We, we work with a lot of organizations on this, on thinking about how to best design their teams and collaborations. Mm. Obviously, the first step is know what you've got. Um, and, and again, because most organizations do staffing at a as a pull model, uh, the typical way when we really are honest uh, with ourselves that or, that projects are staffed is I have a project, I need a certain number of people. I'm gonna go and immediately call my default set of people that I know I've worked with in the past and say, hey, can I get some of your time? And maybe I can attract them with a really cool description of the really cool project I've got. Um, but that means that there isn't really somebody who has a bird's eye view of understanding where have we created interdependencies. Stopping and actually finding that out, mapping out the patterns of interconnection across projects is a first step. But then also looking at and thinking about how that interacts with the, the work processes of those projects. Different projects, you know, if you're in the if you're in the the tax industry, you know there's a certain time of year right around filing season when everybody is overloaded. That's a very different situation than if you're in, for example, a fast-moving consumer goods organization in which they have projects and products that are being launched every week, every month of every year, um, and it's more of an even flow. You need to understand not just the design, but also the pattern of the work that you're dealing with. I, I, just as you were talking there, I want to ask a, a very basic question. You may have come across this in your research does the size of the team affect its effectiveness? So what I'm saying here is, you know, one plus one equals three, two plus two equals five. In terms of teams, is 20 plus 20 then only worth 42? You know, is there a, where's no. that perfect balance? So the, this, you're asking what is probably the most frequent question I get and I have gotten over the last 20 years of teaching, uh, teaching on teams and effective collaboration, which is what's the right number? What's the right size? Of course, you know what my answer is going to be, yeah. which is it's it a balance. <laughs> exactly, it's a balance, and it depends. Now, the the main thing that I would that I would want to impress on on your listeners is just remember what it is that you're balancing. Yeah. The bigger teams are, the less people put in in terms of effort. And it doesn't matter how motivated they are individually. This is this is just what we know about social loafing. When there are more people to divide the work among, everybody puts in proportionally, and and. Uh, absolutely less work and less effort. 
organization. We, we also know that in large collaborations, think about the last big team meeting you were in. Did you hear from everyone? No, it's usually the, the I think we've all had that experience. It's usually the same people. You time. got it. And what we know is as teams get bigger, the number of people you hear from tends to go down. Mm. So for those who say, oh, we're going to add some more people, get these people in, add them in, you'll get some buy-in, uh, we'll get more perspectives. That's actually not what happens. When you add more people, you actually tend to hear less perspectives because you start losing some of that communication. And then, of course, remember that when you add each new person you add, it's not a linear growth in complexity of communication, interdependence and everything. It's an exponential growth because yeah. every new person has to be connected to everybody else who's there. That means there's a very real cost for each new body that you add to the team. So the answer is you need to make it as big as it needs to be to address the problems you've got and then no bigger. Perfect. Um, I want to end with a sort of another fundamental question. How do we end, I'm particularly thinking this in the context of that multi-teams, I'm thinking of that person that has just been across 15 different projects and has not talked to anybody uh, personally, I suppose. How do we end that feeling that employees may have of being a commodity, that impression that they're only needed for their output on these teams and not who they are as individuals? What's, uh, what's the research saying out there? So the challenge here is that we're right at the, the sort of the bleeding edge of that research. We're doing it right now and we're really trying to understand because one of the things that we've been seeing is many of these quote unquote new forms of work. And that's everything from things like Agile, uh, you know, and, and, you know, Agile and Scrum and various derivative forms like what Spotify does, what Valve does, others. Um, all the way to things like holacracy and 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 these these much more sort of extreme almost societal approaches to mm -hmm. to designing collaboration and work. One of the things that we see is with all of these new models, they tend to be promoting greater fluidity, and that reduces people's opportunity to connect and spend time really getting to know one another. Yeah. The challenge is, on, you know, assuming that we're not willing to get rid of these approaches, we're never going to make that go away. We're still going to have that fluidity. What we need to do is we need to start building in conscious approaches uh, to actually build and recreate connection to help people feel recognized as individuals, not just as a as a commodity, as a skill set that, that can be traded um, at will. In terms of what is the right answer, how do we do it? We're still figuring it out. Um, again, for me, communication is always at the root of what I do and, and stopping and having that discussion around you know, and the honest discussion with your people around how they're feeling, how connected they feel to the organization, uh, the level of care that they feel. These are some of the conversations that actually can yield some really big insights on this. But to be really honest, we're still figuring this out. It's one of my favorite answers is we're figuring it out. Um, Mark, thanks so much for your time today. It was a fascinating conversation. I could have done a part two, but I will not take up too much of your time. <laughs> Well, it was and my thanks, pleasure. Thanks so much. And thanks again for the masterclass. It was superb.